0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Full Frame Uh, Podcast.
1: Just uh, just, uh, stop and take it from the top. Okay, okay, you ready? Hey, guys, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. This week I had my friend Ben Sotak on, who is the writer and director of, co writer and director of Mordeo on Crib TV, as well as several other shorts and an assistant editor we talked all about his role as an assistant as well as his writer director credits and how he got a start in filmmaking and he had a lot of cool things to offer
0: so give it a listen
1: dude thanks for joining me
0: happy to be here thank you for having me
1: absolutely um it's been a bit since i've seen you i'm glad that the whole series is out now
0: absolutely i think the last time we saw each other was at like 4 a.m in the woods yeah. of new jersey i was a hollow shell of a man as were you uh and we like hugged goodbye and then drove off into the night and watched the sun rise over manhattan on yeah. the last night
1: that was wild yeah because i waited until um matt the producer was leaving to go mm-hmm. and uh, i think we were the last ones out um uh, maybe you guys were I don't remember, but it was like you know this, the the Boy Scout camp, like dead of night.
0: It was just one of those things, and like when we wrapped on the the second today, second day of shooting, and it, the sun had already sank, and like watching Kobo and Kyle and the G and E team pack up the lights. It was just like slowly watching the forest go into darkness. You realize like, Oh yeah, there's no other lights out here
1: besides mm-hmm. these work lights and these us. set
0: lights. Yeah. So it was a good environment to shoot a, uh, Wendigo themed horror series.
1: I want to hear about all of that. I want to hear about how yeah, you found it and stuff too. Cause I know mm-hmm. we talked about it, but I, I want to talk about it on the podcast. Um, but Ben, tell me, um, where are you from? Um, and then, uh, like, when did you start making films?
0: for sure um, that's a the where I'm from question is tricky. I'd say like the place I grew up or spent the longest time growing up in was Maryland okay. in the woods in a house not too dissimilar from the the cabin and area we shot the um we shot the series in. In fact, Mm -hmm. I like sent it to some friends from back home. Like, did you shoot this in your parents' backyard (laughs) in Maryland? Um, but we, that's where I spent probably my most formative years, uh, just outside of Baltimore, Lutherville, Maryland neighbors with John waters, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we, we, my family moved there. Uh, my mom and grew up there and she'd gone to this, school there, um, which is where my brother and I ended up going. Um, My sister went for a little while and then she left. We moved there from the Caribbean though, which um, we lived in St. Thomas for a few years, which was cool and unique and certainly informed my love of aquatic horror (laughs) and aquatic movies in general. And then prior to that, uh, I was born in Boston. So I just worked in reverse. (laughs) It was like Maryland, uh, Caribbean, born in Boston. Mm -hmm. And that sort of informs the places where i grew up that's cool where'd you go to school in maryland uh it's called park school okay um it's a little uh little private little private school like 70 percent jewish so i went to like a lot of bar mitzvahs um and uh yeah no it was the it was the same school that like my grandparents went to my my grandparents also like helped Found it, and then my mom and my uncles went there, and then uh, me and my brother and my sister all went there as well.
1: Very cool, man. Yeah, yeah. legacy there. Um, did you, so did they have like a, um, some sort of like a video program there?
0: For sure. They, there was a, it had a really strong arts program in general, cool. and like labs for visual arts, um, photo studio uh You know, there were a lot of kids who were, like, unbelievable painters and sculptors. um, And I think the visual arts were kind of, like, all rolled into one. Mm -hmm. And a small portion of that was, like, a, a video editing lab. There wasn't necessarily, like, a film program but there were a few professors including um Peter Warren who was my uh advisor all through high school who were just like huge film fans and filmmakers themselves and kind of encouraged like those of us who were interested into going out and shooting our own stuff as far as equipment goes they weren't really providing anything in that regard but Mm -hmm. you know we'd go shoot on point and shoots and come back and edit in iMovie and screen stuff for fellow classmates.
1: That's cool. Yeah. So what were some of the, um, what, did you know early on that you wanted to work in film or was it kind of like a slow process? It, it, it struck kind of around kind
0: of post middle school, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, when I sort of realized like sports weren't for me, um, I liked acting a little bit, but I didn't like acting on stage. Mm-hmm. I started to get stage fright and, uh, there's not really that many acting opportunities in Maryland outside of like being in local theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, you know, I gravitated towards the film thing cause I liked photography. I liked acting and being able to like put the two together uh, film sort of made the most sense in that regard. And I, that started around like 13, 14 would make like little videos with my friends and stuff. And then when they got kind of bored and moved on and we too cool for that. Uh, I started casting like my little brother and little sister, and like totally. you know the the amount of like mini horror movies we made growing up, like zombie sister, vampire sister. They all were like some monster and then sister, and it was like my sister who's eight years younger than me, like covered in blood and attacking my little brother. Um, they all had, were like monster hyphen
1: sister. Um, that was my my early work. Awesome. Yeah. Where did she get into it too? Was she like
0: she. Kind of. I mean, and actually, like one of my uh, like. There's this class at uh, at NYU called Sight and Sound, where you make like a series of little black and white short films. And the one that like really got the most, the best response from me, the one that made me think like, oh, maybe maybe I'm. Should be doing horror stuff. I I stole the camera equipment from school and took it home to Maryland for the weekend, mm-hmm. and um, we shot this little horror short called Bag of Blood, which is kind of just a rip off of Mike Doherty's Trick or Treat. Mm-hmm. But uh, I cast her in that as like a little kid who's trick or treating. She gets pushed down by a bully, and then she chases him down, and she's like a vampire
1: who cool. rips
0: him apart. And that was our last <laughs> collaboration together.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, at least on you know in the filmmaking regard, I sometimes will have her like stand in um she's she's uh she's got a very expressive face and like has just like a good sort of like all-american cherub kid face so i'll have her like stand in for like photo shoots and like lookbooks and stuff like that Mm. and she's like into it to a point um i asked like both my siblings at one point my brother who's two years younger than me um who has no interest in going into filmmaking but i i remember asking him when we were like 13 and 11 i'm like jake like you know, this is like the time we want to like decide, are we going to be like the Cohen brothers or we need to be like the Sotak brothers? And he was like, fuck you. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> you're, you're on your own. So like both my siblings, they, they appreciate and they
1: entertain it. But, mm-hmm. um, neither of them I think really are gravitating towards film yeah. the way that I did. So, um, how, when did you make the decision, uh, in school to go to NYU for, for film?
0: Um, that, it was it was sort of a starting like junior year i think the once the college applications started coming around um I, there were, the two big ones were usc and nyu i think at the time i was a little too nervous about being like on the other coast and mm. that far away from my family so then i sort of like set my sights on nyu as well as emerson and bu and um even like ut austin some other fantastic film programs but um my family had I'd grown up coming to New York. My grandmother lived in New York, uh, so I like felt I knew the city enough in as much as I knew like the Upper West Side and like the area yeah. where where she lived and there was something sort of like familiar and cool about New York but also a little edgy and scary which mm. kind of drew me to wanting to come to school here and sort of uh, I, f- I felt like it might um, expand me a little bit artistically being somewhere I'm like comfortable enough but also like outside of my comfort zone totally uh, and so that's that's where NYU came into the picture.
1: Cool. And uh how did you find the program at NYU? I think people most people like it and meet a lot of like the people that they're moving forward with and collaborating with in school e- even if it's not NYU, wherever they went to college, but there I I feel like there's this tight knit on on Mordea. There is this like this tight knit mm-hmm. like um I felt like I had stepped into like a class almost. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um not a class like a like an actual like um, a cult? <laughs> you could say that. A now, um, Like a group of people like that were graduates together, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, y- you know,
0: the film school debate is, is an ongoing totally. thing. Um, where the camp that I land in, um, and speaking just from my personal experience, is that it's it's not the only way into the industry. Mm-hmm. Um but if, if it makes sense for you it and you take advantage of it, which I, I feel like I did, it can be absolutely advantageous. And I, I loved my four years there, both for, like, all the resources that the school provided and also some of the, like, limitations they provided and the frustrations I had with them. Mm-hmm. They kind of forced me to figure out what kind of filmmaker I want to be, what kind of artist I want to be. And beyond that, uh, you know, every job I've had, both, you know, doing the dream stuff, the writing, the directing, but even smaller, more below the line things, editing and assistant editing, every job I've had post film school, um, has been through my friends and alumni who, who went there and hooked me up. Yeah. So I'm all, I'm all in favor of, of it. If it, if it makes sense for
1: you financially and, and, uh, you know, where you're based on where you're at. Mm Mm-hmm. So tell me what what were the, some of the things that, that the program forced you to do, or um, that because of a certain like limitation that it impressed upon you. What what did you learn from 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 school?
0: For sure. Um, well, uh, I think like the two biggest examples of that one is on the creative front. The other is on a logistical front. So I'll talk about the logistical one first because that's. Mm-hmm. Less interesting, but um, they have a very rigorous uh, in a good way um, safety department, and you basically, for every production beyond you know your freshman and sophomore year projects, which are like little you know pick up point and shoot just like with your friends using like pretty inexpensive gear that the school provides, mm-hmm. everything beyond that, you sort of have to jump through a billion different hoops and prove that your your project is not only well thought out from a creative and logistical standpoint, but safe and, um, Mm. you know, in order to get to that checkpoint where you get the insurance and you get to walk out of there with, you know, a couple hundred grand worth of equipment for the weekend. Um, So that I think forced me and my friends and all of us who, still work together going forward to like, you know, take this stuff seriously enough that we're not just like fucking around with a camera in the woods and, right. you know, potentially putting people into situations where they could get hurt or the mm-hmm. gear could get hurt. Force like a real respect for onset protocol and making sure those boxes are all checked. Um, and it, And at times it was frustrating and it felt like a limitation you know you're like i just want to take this fucking gear and go shoot why do i have to prove that like no my actor's not gonna actually like chop his arm off it's a fake arm but they want photos of the prop axe and you know the oh yeah well they want like you know a a letter from the prop company you're renting from and they want you to like send a little video showing like how it's going to work this is in reference to my senior film which a guy chops his arm off and it's a romantic comedy of course um and uh (laughs) but but uh you know, it, it forced you to think about something that up until that point was just purely creative chaos. And it's you and your friends or you and your siblings just like running around and figuring stuff out on set. It forced you to be really prepared. And um, at times it felt like you're just doing homework and you're like, well, why do I have to prove this? But I think in the long run it made for safer sets and more prepared uh, filmmakers. That's so, cool. So, yeah, that that I found absolutely advantageous, even though at the time it kind of felt like a drag that I had to like provide all this paperwork and pry
1: you know, was there any time that they, before you move over to the creative, uh, was there any time they said no? Uh,
0: absolutely. Um, the, it was, they would come back and say no, or they'd say like, you need to give us more. Like, I mean, we shot my thesis on like my, Parents, we actually shot that one in my parents' backyard. Brought the crew down to Maryland um, because they live out in the woods and we needed like a creepy wood setup. And you know, they're like, Well, can we do we need like a police officer there on set? Because there's gonna be like it's technically in the public and you have like this prop axe that you're running around with. And I like I pushed back on that one. I was like, No, like it's it's we're in the woods, we don't need a police officer there, it's it's fully safe. Mm -hmm. so I think as long as you made a logical and and reasonable argument for yourself and you provided enough work, they would eventually give you the thumbs up. Mm. Um, and I bet which uh, thus far has been a good prep for every other production I've done since where like you say. Yeah, where you do need to provide that level of, like, detail. And it's not in an academic setting. But now we go into those knowing, like, okay, you need to be able to argue for every piece of this thing that you're doing, both creatively and logistically. Otherwise, like, why should they believe a bunch of kids? Like, you know? Yeah. Because, um, and I think that was born for them out of um, some actual mishaps and accidents that happened oh, on set. Yeah, I know that they... um their safety department like really tightened things up after a kid actually died on a set due to like an electric, he was like wearing flip flops and and plugged in some lights and it was like damp on the ground and electrocuted himself. So they take that shit really seriously, but I think it's for good reason. You know, sets are, you know, run by ADs for good reason. Like it is, chaos but it's also like huge you know expensive lights and props and stunts and um you do need to be respectful of those things even if you are doing something kind of scrappy and and pulled together so it forced us to think about things in that on those terms which i think was really important in the long run
1: that's good and then uh you mentioned creatively it forced you to to kind of improvise and find uh different outlets for things
0: Uh, absolutely um you know, I think as with a lot of a lot of film schools in general, not just the like the prestige, the ones you you hear about, there is an emphasis on, you know, who's making the films that are like the best reflection of the school. And a lot of times that boils down to dramas, um, really intimate Character pieces. So this is like the story of my grandfather and his Alzheimer's and how that you know affected me and my family. There's a big emphasis on like you know write what you know, which that's not just a film school thing. That's a writing in general note, and I think it's a a good note to a degree. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of the type of film. The the sort of the when you think of film school films and you think of like really small. Two characters talking, um, you know, that's sort of the like genre that was pushed on us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kids embrace that to varying degrees of success. The kids who could do that right, of which we we're just talking about our mutual friend Alejandra, mm-hmm. who is like, you know, my Brilliant. filmmaking hero. <laughs> um, she she can do no wrong. She can do horror and she can do big genre stuff, but she can also do these like little intimate character dramas and just blow everybody away with them and and so they're the kids who could do that and do it right and when you're in the presence of that you're like oh shit like i need to figure out a new angle because yeah. i can't i can't do this and that is like the hardest thing to fake um is is you know just like a really well done character drama and i knew hmm. like right off the bat i'm like i can't do that so i need to like pivot <laughs> And figure out what, like, I can do that sets me apart here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and at the time, obviously, we're now in the the horror renaissance, just in indie filmmaking in general. But at the time, nobody was doing horror, at least at, at least in my class at at film school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of was like, you know, I'm egomaniacal enough to be like, no, I need, like, I still need to be a director. I still need to be a writer. I still need it to be mine. But yeah. how do I make it... it mine and also like set me apart and do something that I think um, I do a genre where I have something to like say in. And if I don't have anything to say, then I can at least impress people with some like blood or some monster antlers. Right. Um, Or just
1: being different in like, I don't know if you guys did this in film school where you do like joint screenings. uh all the Yeah. So that's what we would do. And so if the, the kind of like sometimes the most outrageous thing would get the biggest like response. Absolutely.
0: You know, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, how do you like stand out in you know a series of screenings where like half the films are just like you know guys walking through washington square park and he like slips on a banana peel and then like he meets a girl and then they run off into the sunset together which like i made plenty of those and like i mean you know i got to first of all like i got to film school and like a lot of you know uh starry-eyed dudes and and ladies like I was like, cool, I'm here. I am the next Wes Anderson, Martin Scorsese. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm this like untapped genius with like so much to say. And then you start making films and they are all sort of starting to look like the other kids films where it's like, yep, guys walking through Washington Square Park and slips on a banana peel. So like be, because of that, I, it just kind of forced me to think about like, well, what are some other things I love? And what are some other movies that I love that are doable? Obviously, we can't go make Lord of the Rings when, you know, it's you and your friends and like a roll of duct tape and a, mm. and a point-and-shoot a camera. But I started thinking back to some of the films that I loved growing up and I loved like showing my friends and they were all horror. And it got me thinking about horror from the terms of uh, movie magic. And, you know, I think it is like one of the last genres where like for not that much money you can still have some sort of magic happening whether it's totally. like you puppeting a monster mask and we make it you know we pull a <laughs> knife out of it and it looks like somebody's stabbing it mm-hmm. uh, you can really do stuff on set that feels like you're doing a little bit of a magic trick mm-hmm. uh which there's no other than brilliant actors and brilliant writing and brilliant direction there isn't like a visible magic trick happening with like a two character drama yeah. in an apartment. And that sort of attracted me to, it It was like, we can do something that feels bigger or feels weirder and for not that much money. And we can see it physically happening in front of us.
1: Totally. And, and yeah, and having a guaranteed audience is never a bad thing either. I feel like, you know, a uh, part of the, the, the fun of being a horror fan is a bad horror movie is still a, a can be a fun experience and um, Absolutely. You know, we, we can go and watch like any given horror movie, any budget, and it can still surprise you. And Absolutely. And, you know, it's it is one of the last genres that
0: leans more into the expressionistic side of filmmaking yeah. rather than the naturalistic thing. You know, moonlight is like super blue and there's, you know, uh, fog rolling through the trees. Blood is super red. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get away with doing some over the top shit that just frankly just like catches people's I mm-hmm. in a way that maybe a two-person character drama and I keep like ragging on two-person character dramas I'm, I'm all for it or four-person character dramas how many, right. however many people you want in this drama um, but I do think like it, it is one of the last genres where it's like acceptable to use these kind of otherworldly outlandish tools and still
1: make a compelling piece totally so um, once you realized okay this can set me apart what was the first, like, horror short that you tried to tackle? Um, It was called Bag of
0: Blood. Uh, It was made for my sophomore year filmmaking class, Sight and Sound, Mm -hmm. um, which, looking back on it and and talking to my friends, we all still agree, like, that was probably the best class that we took at NYU because they really, they gave you, like, an FS100 and a little lighting kit and you and, like, four kids got to share it and you do like a rotation. So you each like work on each other's films. Mm -hmm. So you like shoot someone's film one week, you gaff someone's film one week and then the next week it's like your turn. You get to direct. Um, So for that, you know, I'd made my series of like really uninteresting dude slips on a banana peel and meets the girl of his dreams shorts Uh, that, you know, got tepid response to, to say the least they were not setting the class on fire um and then it was the weekend of i think was it hurricane sandy that happened in 2012 one yes. of the yeah one of the big hurricanes now they they had this rule the only like rule in that class was like you couldn't bring the equipment outside of a 100 mile radius of uh tish um i happened to be going home to my parents house in maryland for the weekend which certainly fell outside of the 100 mile radius rule but uh i was like, eh, I could probably like swing bringing this on the Bolt bus. if I. So I kind of just like hijacked the equipment and took it all down to Maryland and then the hurricane hit and I ended up being like trapped there. Like school was closed um, and so I was like trapped there with the equipment for a week. Fortunately, my crew was like, yeah, we're not shooting anything, man. Like there's no power in the city. Uh, So I just spent the week with like this FS100 at my parents' house in the woods. This was like around October. So obviously the Halloween mindset, which like I don't know about you, but like Halloween starts like mid July for me. Like that's when we start (laughs) breaking out the decorations and, and carving the pumpkins. So like I was already in that Halloween mindset. Um, And so I use with me doing everything, shooting, um, even I even acted in the things I'd like set up the camera and uh, go like pose in front of it and then Mm -hmm. run back and make sure I like got the shot but like with me and my sister uh, we just shot this little horror short called Bag of Blood about a kid trick-or-treating we shot it on this cool like you know tree-lined road covered in leaves Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, she gets like knocked down by a bully and he steals her candy and she chases him down and she pulls off her little skeleton mask and she's this vampire and she rip some apart and like the but you know done very very cheaply fortunately i had the like equipment there and i was editing on my laptop so i could be like oh we need this little pickup shot so go and shoot mm-hmm. something and i was just kind of like trapped there with the equipment for the week so it was like might as well get some cool shots of the trees um but screen that for class and like from the moment and it was silent too that was the cool thing it was like the you know it was forcing you to really rely on visual storytelling mm-hmm. but um you know i put like the font and just like big red letters bag of blood and from like the moment that came on like i felt like i got the class and i got mm-hmm. the audience and it kind of um it, it, you know it's still like a silent film it's not like we were getting like screams and stuff but people are like this is cool like mm-hmm. this this they really responded to that and you could feel it in the room um even though it's just this simple silly little short so i was like i want to do more of that yeah. how do i do more of that and that was that was the first uh real horror short besides the you know early early cuts the zombie sister and the vampire sister stuff which in hindsight was all leading up to bag of blood that's awesome
1: yeah that's cool so um then uh did you watch it and just say like i I can do better like i can like have people like i i need like with sound with all these other tools in my arsenal i can really scare people
0: Uh, maybe i you know, it's funny. I don't it, it got like I said, it got a great reaction. That reaction wasn't necessarily you think like horror movie horror filmmaker and they're just these sadists who just like want to like jump scare jump scare people, which mm. is like obviously important and the scares are an essential part of it. But for me, it was less about scaring people and more about, you know, horror kind of provided me the the paintbrush and paints and the tools i needed to like use the the canvas of filmmaking to paint the world the way i see it Mm -hmm. you know i see the world in like you know swaying fall trees and you know blood dragged across the floor and i I don't find those things necessarily scary i find Mm -hmm. them beautiful and i love special effects makeup i love you know dramatic cool lighting uh and I, I rather than seeing it as oh I'm gonna you know use these tools to try and scare people it was more like I can communicate visually in a really cool way using the horror medium uh and I wanted to like push that further and do more with special effects and more with you know out there creepy locations it was less about like oh I'm gonna use these tools to like scare folks and to, more like, like elicit a response yeah yeah and that response could like just be as simple as like this is a cool looking monster I'm not like terrified when I'm looking at Mm -hmm. it it's just like this is like cool and beautiful and well shot and effective it's making me like feel something uh, even if that's not necessarily like fear or dread Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like you know a filmmaker I really love is Guillermo del Toro um, who has (laughs) you know inarguably like the most beautiful monsters in his movies and I think not to a fault he loves his monsters so much that he shoots them in a way that is not and he's certainly made his share of scary, terrifying horror movies, but he shoots them in a way with such reverence that Mm. they feel beautiful and they feel alive. And it's less about like, bah, this like goat monster is like behind this girl and freaking her out. It's more like, wow, this is almost like you're looking at a painting Mm -hmm. of this thing. And that is something that I'm still seeking to go for with my, my stuff. You know, people, I'll send it to like friends or family whatever and they're like oh it was so scary and I'm like I know they're just like saying that right. but I'm like that wasn't like necessarily the intention like mm-hmm. I just really like using the medium to like make things look cool and make things look beautiful and I think you can do that with horror and with special effects makeup and with bizarre locations in a way that you can't with other genres
1: so um what uh, what were some of the films you made after uh, Bag of Blood that um where you, you you like added to that kind of toolkit, like where, um, or you, you were find it, that helped you find that specifically
0: for sure. Um, so following bag of blood did one more short in that sight and sound class, which again, I was like, intention wasn't to scare, but it mm-hmm. still entered the ghost Ouija board genre about a girl, uh, in an apartment trying to communicate with her dead friend. Again, it's like, that goes back to the roots of the, like, two people in an apartment character genre. But I was still like, well, what if one of them is dead? And she's trying to communicate with the Ouija board. And again, not with the intention of, like, let's make this scary. It was like, let's make something beautiful and effective. And the class liked that enough that it got voted into the showcase that year. Cool. It got, like, that level of response. And that kind of, like, solidified, cool, I can work in the this horror genre mm-hmm. and... Even if it's not necessarily lights out or thing in the apartment where it's about, you know, or not, those aren't about jump scares, but they they use them so effectively and that's like what you remember from them. It was like I can use the logic of horror to create something that's a little bit weirder and a little bit different and and it gets a good response and it's still... At the time, it wasn't what everyone else is doing. It would be interesting to like go sit in on one of these these film school classes now. And now that horror is because of A twenty four and Jordan Peele, because mm-hmm. it is you know having this renaissance where it's obviously it's still commercially accepted, but critically it's like lauded. It would be really interesting to see if like that's changed the way kids are making films in I've, film yeah, school.
1: It most certainly has, I'm sure, because yeah. those are the films that are the cultural touchstones now. The Get Out's the Hereditaries, Mm -hmm. you know, that everybody's talking about, you know? Absolutely. You have to see this in the theater. Because there's something, too, uh, about like watching specifically, like, there's these big action spectacles, which I really love and enjoy, but also, like, besides those, the ones that I want and have to go see in the theater are horror movies, Mm -hmm. you know? And even if it's like not necessarily the most effective horror film, um, I'm, I'm still, I'm always on the edge of my seat when I'm in the theater, yeah. you're in the dark, and you're forced to just watch it, you it, know? It's, it, it's the last genre that still elicits
0: the response in me that, like, anything could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, for, like, for example, like, we went and saw Ma last night, the new okay. Blumhouse movie, which I absolutely loved. It is campy and bizarre, and the conceit is a little bit you're still like figuring out like in what world would these kids like go party at this woman's house just cause it's like <laughs> the best drinking spot in town. But the audience was like, we were, we were all just like fully drawn in because like every five minutes, something crazy would happen. And because, mm-hmm. you know, we've come to expect from horror movies, people are going to die. People are going to get maimed. It just feels dangerous in a way that uh, no other genre does. You know, the mm-hmm. the stakes could not be higher. I know that, in avengers and i love avengers too i I love all that stuff but like i know that in avengers the stakes are like the fate of the universe but you know they're not gonna lose ultimately you know infinity war is just one half of of a story and and you know while you're enjoying it for that spectacle the stakes aren't really that high because you know that the avengers are eventually going to win whereas in a horror movie i'm like I don't know if Ma's going to win. I don't know if these kids are going to win. I don't know who I want to win, but it feels unpredictable and I'm engaged on that level.
1: Yeah. In fact, if the protagonists do win in a horror, I feel like that's, Uh, a subversion of expectation. Yeah. Sometimes.
0: Whenever a protagonist wins in a horror movie though, they always like lose Lose such a significant (laughs) part of themselves. It's like Laurie Strode. Yeah. She doesn't die at the end of the original Halloween, but Mm -hmm. she's fucking traumatized for years to come. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's like, there's real. There's really no winning in a horror movie, which I think is very true. Truer to life and more bleak, but also makes
1: for a more fun and unpredictable viewing experience. Totally. Um, well, cool. Um, so, uh, when when did you graduate? Um, and then, what was the first like foray into filmmaking after that?
0: For sure. Um, so, I graduated in 2015. Um, so, it was four years in, four years out as of this spring, mm-hmm. um, and pretty quickly, this wouldn't necessarily be a foray into filmmaking, but it would be a foray into the filmmaking world, uh, I got my first like day gig as a, as a post-PA on, cool. um, on an MGM picture, Barbershop, The Next Cut, which uh, I got because of the guy who, uh, Anthony Moroni, who's a fantastic editor, he cut my senior thesis film. Um, and he was looking, he was getting bumped up to an apprentice editor and he was looking for a replacement. Uh, so I swept in as his replacement post PA and started working with, um, the editor and director and by working with them, I mean like getting them lunch and stuff like that. But it was, but being in an actual working cutting room, um, which is the cutting room that I still work out of, um, at sixteen nineteen downtown. And just like, you're surrounded by all these incredible artists. Um, and Mm -hmm. from there they keep needing new PAs, apprentice editors, um, folks to do assistant work, coordinating work. So I've been working with them ever since, but, but, uh, which has been a great day job and a great way to learn um, and meet and take advantage of some of the resources that that place has to offer. But I really didn't shoot anything until anything of my own until the spring of that year. Um, and fortunately, thanks to the pressure of my uh, dear friend and long suffering DP, Stephen Russell, who like every couple of weeks, like, you should probably shoot something, man, you should probably shoot something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I decided like, all right, cool. He but was in like
1: the nicest possible. <laughs> oh, abs- absolutely. He's, he's just got like the most casual kind of like, Hey, why aren't, why aren't we doing this? <laughs> uh, absolutely. But he's also like, he's
0: always right. He's always like, yeah, <laughs> I'm just like sitting around and like, you, I should be cutting my teeth a little bit and mm-hmm. shooting something. And sort of, you know, uh, but I, I, we did two thesis films at, at NYU and, and both of those, you know, I felt like I'd done a good job of sort of playing around in the special effects makeup world and the, you know, ghostly character drama world. And I wanted to shoot something, you know, that was short and tight and concise, but I wanted to, like, push myself a little bit. I'm like, what's what's a realm I haven't worked in? And that was VFX. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I grew up in St. Thomas uh, or spent a few years in St. Thomas, which definitely informed my love of all things aquatic horror wow. mm-hmm. from Jaws to H.P. Lovecraft to mm-hmm. the Kraken. And uh, I wanted to do something that had, like, a, you know, a VFX character in it um, at the insistence of, like, another one of my friends, he was like, well, why don't you slap some, like, branding on that? Um, I also happen to be partial to Kraken Rum. So it was like, cool, let's do a little Kraken Rum spec um, with an actual, like, 3D rendered uh, Kraken creature That's in cool. that. So we went to, so me and Steve-O, and and by the way at the time and this is advice to all you like soon to be graduating film students but if you've got your go-to dp it's really beneficial when your dp works at a rental house because mm-hmm. uh they have access to the best gear and the best lenses and they can usually sneak stuff out for free <laughs> or or for heavily discounted so totally me and my crew including siva we went to a beach in brooklyn called dead horse bay which have you you heard of dead horse bay i haven't um it is far and away the coolest location i've ever shot anything at and also has like a very metal name dead horse bay (laughs) um but uh it's like a dirty post-apocalyptic beach that looks like it's at the end of the world and we shot uh this little kraken speck there which um you know, me and my friend cut and we got colored and we got some some VFX in there. And it ended up being just like a nice little concise one minute showreel piece that I could send to people and be like, here's a thing that I made that I am like there's no caveats about. I'm just like so proud of and yeah. it's cool and it only takes you a minute to watch, but like this looks like the movies I wanna be making mm-hmm. you know we didn't compromise on anything because we made it one minute long and we shot it in an afternoon but it's still That's people awesome. it got that response and again it was it was that thing it's a it's a commercial piece and it's arguably even horror maybe even more in the like fantasy uh creature realm but yeah exactly but it's still like a you know I'm like I want to focus on like the beauty of this monster and of this location. It's not about jump scares necessarily, but it's just painting in a kind of canvas way using the the tools of horror. So that was the first thing I like directed and and finished post film school.
1: Cool. And so the um uh the the job that you're doing or that you said you've been doing ever since is just as um, post and assistant work mostly, mm-hmm. and so that's your bread and butter gig. There's there have there been anything else that you've been working on?
0: That's the bread and butter gig, and and the um the hierarchy, as you know, uh as a, as an assistant editor yourself, mm-hmm. um especially on union jobs, as you go from being post PA to uh, apprentice editor, and then from there through assistance so um once you make that jump from post pa to apprentice editor you actually get into the editors guild which is really nice because Mm. health insurance and uh pension and all that stuff so i did so i did barbershop as a post pa i did girls trip uh nice 2017's (laughs) breakout comedy which um given the amount of times i had to qc it is probably the movie i've seen the most in my lifetime i've seen that movie upwards of 30 times, which you would probably not expect from me as like a nerdy <laughs> horror director, right. but I fucking love it. And it's an absolute blast. So I did that as a post PA and then, uh, that same crew was doing night school, the Kevin Hart movie. So I bumped up to mm. apprentice on that and then, um, post that and the job I'm on now currently, uh, wrapping up is a Netflix film called last thing he wanted with, um, Anne Hathaway and Ben Affleck, uh, which is actually pretty awesome. Cool. Uh, and uh yeah it's just been the the cool thing about these like post pa or apprentice gigs is like they run really long it is mm-hmm. a steady paycheck for 9 10 months sometimes these jobs go over a year because as you know post can just like go on and, on, just and drag, on and on absolutely so that's been a nice way to like fill my days and pay my rent and now have health insurance through because Mm. i turned 26 in july and having that fear off the table is is kind of nice (laughs) totally um but but yeah that's been that's been the day gig and the cool thing about that though is you know working at 1619 um and becoming friends with the the folks who work there, the producers, the colorists, um, the mm-hmm. editors, like you have access to some unbelievable resources and like the best fucking movies in New York city are coming through there. So like next door to us, when we were working on night school, they were cutting a uh, quiet place. You just like bump into John Krasinski in That's the nuts. elevator downstairs. they were cutting Mary Poppins returns. So like you'd get into the elevator and it's like, Oh, then his wife, Emily Blunt hops on the elevator and it's mm-hmm. like, wow, I'm in the presence of these two amazing artists. Yeah. Um, and even more than that, when I started doing stuff for Crypt TV, when I made my first like official original monster short for Crypt TV, I'd gotten friendly enough with the colorist there that he was like, can I do the can I do the grade for you? Oh, cool. Um, and so we got to have it on the big theater screen where they colored wow. Hereditary and Black Swan yeah, and nice. all these incredible movies. So, uh, you know, it's been it's been an unbelievable learning experience, and in addition to being, you know, a job job, thanks to the generosity of those folks and just
1: becoming friendly with them, I've gotten to take advantage of those resources in a really, really big way. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's great. And so, and also like a little bit of like, um, you know, not only just like making contacts, people who are just working in the industry, but also like, see, like you said, seeing how the process works Mm -hmm. and just like using those kind of lessons in your own is there anything that you learned from them that you took into Mordeo and then we'll take a step back and I want to talk about how Mordeo came into being but any big lessons you took from work into your own work for sure um you know what's been nice
0: about it is the the movies that i've worked on so far they're all studio movies Mm -hmm. um and so you know from the get-go you see like what a post calendar looks like and part of what that includes is like all right there's the director's cut then there's the producers get to watch it then they provide their notes and then there's the first friends and family screening and then you go in and you Mm -hmm. re-tinker things based on that and then there's the first like actual screening with like a paid you know audience who's there to give their feedback and do a focus group and you start to see that um for bigger films for things that isn't just like you and your friends making when there is millions and millions of dollars on the line you get a lot a lot of input from a lot a lot of people that if you're the director or editor uh you're not meant to take personally you, totally. because everybody is still you know moving towards making the best film that they think possible and it's mm-hmm. like how do you handle those notes how do you handle that feedback and still make something that you feel like is yours and you're proud to have your name on mm-hmm. um but watching you know the some of the directors and editors i've worked with uh, handle the notes process and handle you know being on the deadline of like we need to like turn around a another producer's cut and the producer's giving this note that's ridiculous but we got to do it anyways uh, was incredibly advantageous um, especially as I moved into working on properties that belong to someone else that isn't just like me and my vision and taking all the time in the world I want and having it cut the way that I Mm -hmm. want it to be.
1: Yeah because when it's yours you feel like you can just tweak and tweak forever and then at some point you know you'd just be content to just keep 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 going.
0: Absolutely. um, Absolutely. Well, and I mean, seeing how like a professional post supervisor runs a cutting room and keeps people on their deadlines, you know, it's just, it's such a far cry from film school where literally I will, to this day, 2019, so four years out from graduating, I'll bump into, you know, classmates of mine at, Mm -hmm. at parties who are in my senior thesis class. They shot, you know, a week or two after after me and i'll be like yo like i never saw your film how is it and they'll be like "Ah, oh, you know it's it's coming along and we're talking about like 12 minute shorts here they like, coming along i I don't want to say we're like picture locked yet and i'm like it's been four years like it oh, has yes. it, it has to end at a certain point mm-hmm. and you know i think this applies to directing as well but like on on set with directing like Sometimes a choice is better than like the right choice it's just like it's got to move along it's we can't be like standing here debating this shit all day and i think the same is true of post where people get like you know when it's just free form we have months and months to just kind of like tinker around and do this like Mm -hmm. you get bogged down in these like minute little choices which ultimately are slowing the thing down and like maybe we'll make it better, but it's not going to make it any better if it never gets finished and never gets seen.
1: (laughs) Solid point.
0: Yeah. So, you know, being in a situation where it's like, all right, well, we've got this cutting room and we've got this DI scheduled and this cutting room is costing us thousands of dollars a week. So like Mm -hmm. you guys have to get this thing done was incredibly advantageous. And then just seeing how they handled um, how these artists who are pros and, and you know, have been doing this for so long. Handle notes and handle outsider
1: input has mm-hmm. been super advantageous. That's great. I hear that, um, and I've never worked. I haven't worked on a feature as an assistant, but uh, I hear some some directors can be like very like, "Oh, you're in the room. Like, what do you think? Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever had that happen before?" Um, um,
0: not necessarily. First of all, I mean, I think if a director is asking like the apprentice or the assistant for that. It it might be like a too many cooks in the kitchen situation, but they do for like more minute details for like, you know, stock footage shots and stuff. They do Mm -hmm. leave a lot of that stuff creatively up to you. It's like, find me like five of these and and you pull those in. You're like, I think this one might be the one to do. And they're like, yeah, that's good. Or that's not good. I mean, it, it is in general, a fairly collaborative environment, but you know, especially on like a big, like some of the bigger who's worked on there's a first assistant a second assistant me the apprentice Mm -hmm. it's like and then uh, that's all underneath the editor uh and the editors they're making the creative choices we're more handling the like technical workflow side of things um but uh but it's you know throughout it's been fairly good vibes i've only worked with like really cool and really talented and really um collaborative directors even if they're not necessarily asking you for your creative input but it's also like okay. i wouldn't know how to pick a great take of tiffany haddish and girls trip like <laughs> i i love that movie and i yeah. and i love what those guys did with it but i wouldn't like know how to i i, I i'm so comfortable being an audience member and for for a comedy like that because mm-hmm. it's just not not my world
1: at all has there ever been like a? you said you watched uh Good girls trip mm-hmm. over thirty times. Yeah. Was it, was it um, QCing for the the same cut for different things, or was it watching like different versions of the f- of the film, um, like version? to version or, like, throughout a few weeks.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's over the course of, like, we're on, like I said, these post-jobs go on. It's carrying a yeah. baby to term. Like, they're usually, like, nine mm-hmm. months long. So, yeah. like, that's over the course of, like, you know, director's cut. You go to, you know, you go and help out at the the friends and family screening. Mm-hmm. And then there's the producer's cut. So that's, that's over the course of, like, multiple cuts. And you watch, like... You know, those real-time run times go down and down from, like, this is, like, a three-hour
1: comedy to, like, now it's, <laughs> now it's like, a tight hour and a half. And you're, mm-hmm. like, how the fuck did they do that? So are you watching? Is there anything, um, like, eye-opening? Or are you seeing, like, the evolution in more than just obvious ways? Just going, like, oh, I can see why they made that choice. Or... Um, I kind of wish they'd stuck with a different choice. Are you are you developing that at all? Uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, and for the most part, with these things, it's really they're like pacing choices. It's mm-hmm. like it's like let's lift this entire scene because like we this our inciting incident or whatever isn't happening until like twenty five minutes in. Or you'll sit in on like a friends and family screening where they'll be like, this joke really didn't land at all. Mm-hmm. Like and especially, I mean, it's true of I think it's true of comedy and of Horror feature films in general, like you know, you know, right away if like a comedy's working or if a horror movie's not working. Fortunately, right. a horror movie if it's not working can swing into the comedy realm as we, mm-hmm. as we discussed before. But like sitting in on those like friends and family screenings, it's like yeah, like there's been like three of these screenings and the same joke is not landing. So you'll watch like the editor and the director be like, all right, then it shouldn't be in the movie. Mm-hmm. Get it out. Um, and and sometimes that can be for pacing purposes, but also it's like if why are we lingering on this joke if it's not working? Right. So that's been cool to see. And like, you understand why they do, uh, test screenings of these movies. And Mm -hmm. it's like, there's almost like a formula to it. It's like, if this joke lands this many times, then it's like, it's good. And it stays in, I'd imagine it's similar with, you know, when you're you're starting to talk about studio horror movies and things like in the conjuring universe, it's similar mentality when it comes to jump scares, which or not even jump scares, just like scares. Uh, which are, you know, structurally orchestrated similar way, in a similar way to jokes. There's the setup, and then there's the punchline, mm-hmm. the payoff. Um, and I'd imagine like this isn't working. We're seeing like too much of the demons. Like all right, eighty six. It this one we get a solid scare every time. And when I, when I say they do these preview screenings and friends and family screenings, they'll hire companies to literally just put in like infrared night vision cameras, mm-hmm. so like you can watch that picture in picture in real time back with like the movie. And it's like, so you're watching the movie and then you see this little picture in picture of the audience and like, they're laughing at this one, they're screaming at this moment or they're just like silence. And that was supposed to be like one of the big jokes.
1: So it's like, all right, 86 it. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I find all this fascinating because this is more or less what I want to do. So let's talk after. Yeah, we'll have to. Um, yeah, no, have you heard, um, Uh, Jason Blum did an amazing interview on Todd Gardner's podcast about um, how he got the studio to release um, Paranormal Activity. Have you heard that interview? I haven't. Have you heard the story?
0: I've heard him talk. I mean, I've I've listened to pretty much every interview of that man uh, talking about Paranormal Activity. But what was the the story? So so
1: what I found fascinating was like – or I think Oren Pilai, mm-hmm. is that guy, the guy's name? Um, I think it's pronounced like that. He, um, when he did Paranormal Activity, they had it screened and it hit real big, and he signed with some company. And then um, they said like, okay, but they're gonna want to remake it. But Jason Blum kind of inserted himself into mm-hmm. the equation and was like, we're not gonna have them remake it. Like we, we'll, like if I can get. Um, them to screen it. They'll see how good it is mm-hmm. how well it plays. And um, they, they would not screen it. And so he said, um, all right, like we're going to have to do like a double or nothing kind of situation. Mm-hmm. We went to Orin and he said something like, I'm butchering this story, by the way, but he went to him and he said, like, um, all right, I'm going to put it in the contract that like we'll remake it. But before they do that, they have to sit and do a screening mm-hmm. with the writer Yeah, And the writer has to look at it and um, decide what's working and what's not. And so that's the only way he could get it in front of a public screen. They screened it and then they loved it so much. They're like, we're just going to release it as is.
0: Sometimes you got to bet on yourself, um, which I think Jason Blum is like the producer who does that Mm -hmm. better than anyone. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I skipped this over in the film school story, but I was lucky enough to my, my summer between junior and senior year. I interned at Blumhouse out in LA Cool, and, you know this was like this was just pre-whiplash but post you know uh, insidious 2 um cool. you know they had their like big franchise in place and i will say you know in the in the debate of you know film school versus no film school um we kind of glazed over the like the screenwriting side of things yeah. um i took at least initially like a a few screenwriting classes because that's obviously something I'm passionate about too. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned so much more about screenwriting by sitting at a desk every day and doing reading. coverage on screen yeah. and re- reading scripts, learning what worked, what didn't work, and then even like learning to write coverage. Make I think makes you a better uh, screenwriter. But mm-hmm. like the scripts that came through that office, and some some never got made, never you never heard of. But like I remember doing, I remember like the screenplay. I was like. Because, you know, you read, like, the classics, you know, Taxi Driver and The Godfather, which, Mm -hmm. like, are amazing screenplays, obviously, but even, like, format-wise, it's not necessarily, you read those things in film school, you read them on your own. Format-wise, they don't really apply to, like, how scripts are being written today, but Mm -hmm. to read, like, I think, like, the screenplay that... I think made it click for me, like how you write an amazing screenplay that's going to make for an amazing film was uh, Gerald's Game, like Mike Flanagan's Gerald's Game. I remember doing coverage on that and that is an unbelievable script and that was like the biggest like recommend of the whole summer, (laughs) uh, which I think Blumhouse probably passed on, but they ended up doing at Netflix and made for a really powerful, really fantastic movie. But you just like, I I was like in tears by the end of reading the screenplay and I I never, and prior to that, even in film school classes, when you're reading those it's just kind of like a cold blueprint for like what the movie is, but that reading that and a few others, you know they let us read the whiplash screenplay like cool. reading those you like, oh, this text document uh with this typewriter font can actually like make me feel that can be like a work of art in its own right um but I just think in general their model and how they've pivoted and adapted their model there at Blumhouse is just. It's it's unbelievable. And they're mm. making some of the most interesting, wide-release movies. Even Ma. Ma was a Blumhouse movie, which right. you saw last night. And, like, that logo came up. And, like, everybody in the audience, even at Regal Union Square, was cheering. Like, you know you're it's in for something so wild, interesting yeah. and tight and different when it comes from
1: that company. Horror or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Well, um, well, we'll have to continue that chat. Um, but I do want to hear about... Um, so uh, how uh, Mordeo came into being, because mm-hmm. um, I know there was a short that ended up on Crypt TV, um, and then that preceded the web series. So um, talk a little bit about um, how you and Steven came up with that idea and then how it came to fruition.
0: For sure. Um, I mean, and it, it, I guess like the, the Blumhouse talk is probably a natural segue into the Crypt TV talk, because I first heard of Crypt TV uh, through Blumhouse there. hmm They are, at least they were initially, like an angel investor and and, um, had some equity rolled up into the company. And I've I've heard of them because, by being friends with some of the, on Facebook, some of the executives and assistants at Blumhouse at the time, who we were interning for Mm -hmm. at the time, they then went on to go start directing and producing shorts for for Crypt TV, um, and then since I graduated on to making their own features. So just like by seeing those pop up in the timeline, Crypt TV was already on my radar. And then obviously, you know, I follow Eli Roth on every social media platform. And, Mm -hmm. and when the, you know, the company was starting out, he was obviously promoting it. And it was cool to just tune in and see, you know, these, some of them super beautiful, like the birch and thing in the apartment, just like really lavishly cinematically produced horror Mm -hmm. shorts that were tailor-made for like a short form. Uh, so post shooting the Kraken piece, um, which, you know, I was, i i think i would cite with like helping jumpstart like my uh directing career just as like a real piece to send around Mm -hmm. um we started thinking it was you know it was like a month or two later we wanted to do a little horror short just built around a scare um and make something that was still cinematic but also scary i think up until that point i hadn't done like a real like monster scare and the kind of David F. Sandberg model of like, you know, it's just like a chick alone. And then this monster pops up. Obviously Mm. I wanted to bring my kind of uh, pretentious, like cinematic flourishes to it. So similar to what we did on Kraken, we, you know, we took some gear, uh, we rented some gear from, from the rental house Steve was working at. Um, in this case, you know, this was towards the tail end of when he was working there, he might, I don't know if I'm allowed to, talk about this, but I, but we were going to like shoot it on the cook speed pancros, which we shot the crack on, which are, or, sorry, no, the cook minis, which we shot the crack on, I want your lovely, wonderful lenses. Uh, and i remember having this conversation with him we're like at this point it was it was literally he was we were going to shoot this at my family's house in maryland we had it was just him like we had uh we had sean who's an amazing gaffer and grip but like steve wasn't gonna have an ac he wasn't gonna have like a second ac he's like i'm gonna be doing all myself bare, DP, bones and bare bones in it but he's like and i was like well what would like what would make it just like automatically look good no matter like what we point the camera at? and he was like well we got these master primes just sitting around here collecting dust. Nobody's <laughs> running those. Maybe we take those down. And I was like, what, like, what would I know that like master primes are shot? on?" he's like, well, like everything Roger Deacon shoots is on those. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's get those. <laughs> so we shot this like stupid little in the attic horror short, but like on master primes with the intention of, you know, I wanted to make something scary. I wanted to, cut my teeth in that regard. I ended up playing the monster in it that crawls oh, up the really? ladder at the end. So it was just like me under heavy makeup with Courtney, uh, my girlfriend who's production designing it, like directing me for holding the monitor and Steve like <laughs> up in this dusty attic with covered with like dead mice and stuff in my parents' house. We set off the smoke detector because of the, the, lights. <laughs> the, the lights and the, and the um, what's it called? The hazer. I love, I love me some haze. Mm. There's like a constant like battle on set between me and Steve where I'm like more haze and he's like that doesn't look like how haze looks. And I'm like more of it. It's fucking smoke at that point. Right. Um so we shot this and I remember
1: this from the last shoot day. Absolutely. Mario.
0: Absolutely. I love love some unnatural looking haze. Uh but um but yeah, we we shot this short, you know, again, the intention for me was to make something scary but also, you know, under 2 minutes so it could be playable for Crypt TV and just like mm-hmm. on a cold call. So this this is an interesting point and like a piece of advice I give to people in general. But I have a lot of people ask me like, how'd you even like get in touch with Crypt TV? How'd you do that? And I was just like, I went to their website and there's a submissions button. Right. And like most places have a submissions page mm-hmm. and an email, with like a little form you can send out. At the time, I think it was just like an email, and I just sent them an email. I'm like, hey, you know, we we they featured this on Blumhouse.com. Would you guys be interested? And they did, and it you know it was just like one of their little featured creature. Uh, shorts at the time but at the time they were starting to really i think this was like a few months after they had released the birch which mm-hmm. is just like a stunning unbelievable little little piece of that horror such cinema
1: a, such a cool short
0: amazing monster amazing short and i think like they were starting to figure out that like this model of a as they phrase it like a hyper visual creature mm-hmm. um, with like a unique mythology uh, was what really worked for their platform outside of these little one-off scares. But they liked our short enough to to license it and play it on there. And then um, just through through that, they're like, Hey, we really dug this. We saw your Kraken piece. We we think you guys are really talented. You're a talented team. Uh, do you have any? You know, if you want to pitch us on something, let us know. Uh, and that's sort of where we we were like, Oh, well, you guys don't have a Wendigo thing. Maybe we uh maybe we whip up a little Wendigo short. Totally.
1: Yeah. So then you guys went off and wrote the, the two-page, three-page version mm-hmm. of, like, that first short? Yeah,
0: yeah. It was um, – and they work very quickly. Um, you okay. know, so, like, the short went up, and then they, you know, put out the the offer. Like, do you want to, you know, pitch us on any original things? So we wrote, like, a few different concepts Um Stuff that
1: you're still working on, maybe.
0: No, I mean we were just just sort of like trying to like figure out what their like model was and figure out what was working for them as as I think they were doing at the at the time. So some were just like little like one off boo scare shorts, but then um they really responded to the the Wendigo idea, and that that really just came from you know I think they had done a vampire short, they'd done a werewolf short, and I've always loved the design and the lore surrounding Wendigos, um you know especially. So we talked about growing up in the woods. I shot, I saw my share of dead deer and and yeah. dead bucks and and like, just that imagery and and the idea of of being driven to to hunger enough to be forced to cannibalize. That sort of, that lore has always, I feel like, been in my DNA, and I've I've wanted to make something like that. So we, we pitched them on that, and that was the one that they were like, oh, that's cool. We got to change up the title so it's a little bit more Googleable and identifiable mm-hmm. um, as as our own thing. And then several drafts later, it became, became Mordeo.
1: Cool. And so, um, <clears throat> Mordeo, the short existed before we went and shot all of the the rest of the web series. Yeah. Um, was it kind of like a, um, like we'll see how it plays and then we'll take it from there or?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak for, you know, I don't want to speak for, for them as far as my involvement, goes you know is on the creative and on the development side but i do think at the time the the idea was sort of we'll make a little producible short for to like test out these characters mm-hmm. both the the design the mythology and um you know it's a low stakes investment on their end it was the first thing that i had made that anybody else was putting their money into which yeah. like was super exciting at first and then i was like oh shit like that's like an added layer of pressure where it's not just like you know a couple hundred bucks <laughs> totally we cobbled together uh but, um, lost my train of thought. Yes, yes. So, so the, the idea, I think, with a lot of their characters, and they did this with Sunny Family, um, obviously they did with The Birch, mm-hmm. uh, was to make, like, a little one-off short that, like, could stand on its own and be its own cool little piece. But if enough people viewed it and enough, you know, fans commented, we want to see more of this, then the idea would be to greenlight a more long form and by long form I mean still in the web series Mm -hmm. realm but to to move forward and roll some more money into the into the property which fortunately they did and it was it was a cool thing to watch overnight you know from like you make your little shorts and even like the Kraken thing I remember being excited like wow we got like a thousand views on Vimeo when the original Mordeo short came out it was like oh we got like a million and a half views overnight and then like even where it's at now where it still gets shared and and watched, it's still up over eight million views and to have like that many mm-hmm. people being like, Wow, we love this thing, this thing is so cool and sending you fan art and mm-hmm. even before we ended up doing the, the series, we were getting that fan art and getting that response. Um so that cool. was that was wild. That was yeah,
1: cool. their community, their fan community is so um passionate. It's so cool to see. Um Cause, uh, and I think when I, uh, initially, uh, signed on to, to, to AD, the, uh, web series, you pointed me to, um, you and Steven and I met and you were like, you should Google Mordeo on like Instagram or something because it's just us and all of our fans are, and then like some restaurant in mm-hmm. Italy. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Which it still <laughs> is. And I feel like I've, uh, one day I want
0: to go eat at Mordeo in Sydney or Las Vegas and, um, 'Cause A, it looks amazing, but B apologize for saturating the <laughs> uh, Mordeo hashtag with horrible images of cannibalism and dear zombie monsters. I love
1: it. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and
0: and I mean obviously in the you know, last couple months since the this series aired, that that response has, has just intensified. Um, yeah. and, you know, they're they're now Mordeo shirts and pins and and uh, yeah. I get even more pants. Some somebody sent me a uh, custom belt buckle that they had made with Whoa. the monster and with the symbol. I'll show you a photo. That's a Afterwards, uh, yeah, shout out to Johnny Universe on Instagram. He's like the coolest dude. He's super talented, and he like made this for his class. And I messaged him. I'm like, that's so badass. I've been like wearing a belt buckle on set. And he's like, oh, do you want this? I'll send it to you. And he sent it, and it's uh, it's amazing.
1: I remember that belt
0: buckle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I was like the Jewish like- cowboy trying to command respect on <laughs> on set, which I. Clearly didn't, uh, but but uh, but now I got a
1: a more belt buckle to wear on the next set, which is cool. I love that. Yeah. Oh, so um, tell me a little bit about the development process for Crypt TV. You know, you talked earlier about in NYU how there are certain creative challenges that you had to meet. Were there any that stipulations or things that? Um, I know there the answer to this is yes but but I want you to talk about um certain things that Crypt TV wanted you to do in terms of like you know the the hypervisual stuff we talk about there opening shots sure. those kinds of things uh how was the development process with 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 regard to that
0: Yeah so so it's interesting and I think like in some ways it kind of informs some of the cooler more interesting elements of the uh of the mythology and of the creative but you know the the you need to understand that like where these things are living they are online um you kind of need to pivot some of the like film school education. Like you know let it let it hang in the wide let these like moments sit and chill and it's like no you need to like grab viewers attention um Mm -hmm. right from the get-go otherwise and at least initially back when they were purely on facebook i think which is when we did the um did the original short for them, you know, it's like, we need to grab someone in the first, like, two seconds, otherwise they keep scrolling past on Facebook. This is in their feed, this was prior mm-hmm. to their YouTube channel. Um, but in some ways, you know, doing things that were so short and so compressed and, like, getting to the gore was, uh, and informed some of the cooler parts of the mythology. I mean, you and I have been talking ad nauseum about, like, the Wendigo mythology, which uh, mm-hmm. I love, and it's it's, you know, rooted in this, like, really long running kind of like dread where it's like a person is like lost in the woods and they start to, they cannibalize somebody and then they start to like eat their own lips and like they eat their skin and that's how they start to become this like monster and it happens over the course of like months and months and months with this we were making a two minute short so it's like we got to like expedite that shit it's yeah. like a werewolf transformation it's like you take a bite of flesh and then like boom antlers start sprouting out of the head which i think is like that was dictated by the medium and where this thing was going to live because it had to be so short. But also I'm like, that became one of the cooler parts of this like, folklore that we were adding on to am like yeah. e- you know
1: so and I my I, favorite part of the short the short before the web series is when there's that shot where the antlers come out of the yeah so and,
0: cool and that was literally just you know Courtney with these two antlers like poking them out through like the hat and we were like I guess we, he has to keep the hat on because the entire time which people love people are like I love that he's like a fucking hipster Wendigo and he's got this like beanie on the whole time it does show um, up
1: in a lot of the fan art too
0: absolutely yeah it's it's cool and I, I you know that was just a logistical thing. But then after the fact, I justify, I'm like, well, they're still, they were humans, and they, they I guess, like, retain a little bit of that uh, their, their clothes or their, their culture from after they transform. But, but yeah, it was just sort of like, all right, we got to do this thing in like two minutes. It's a transformation thing. Um, the transformation happens like the second after you take a bite of, of meat, I guess. It's, mm-hmm. it's an instant thing. That's
1: cool. Yeah. So so what were some of the other things they challenged you to, to do to work into the series?
0: Um, So when we did the short initially back in 2017, I think that was like right at the start of the idea of there being this like crypt monster universe where like mm. all these things were taking place in the same world. And I remember getting super excited because I got an email from them. They're like, you know, subject like soft integration, the birch. And I the birch was like the short that made me want to make Shorts for them. the the guys who made that uh, bloody cuts Ben and Anthony are unbelievably talented and, and I I really am am in love with that that piece and they send us this email and they're like you know we have these little talisman these little twig symbols um can you like plant this somewhere hmm. in your shorts so if you look at the beginning in the opening wide shot we rack focus from it. it's just dangling from like a tree when we we do this wide of the the guy hunched over his friend on the ground but that was like. That was super cool. And like, and I think that was the when they were just starting to test out the idea that all these creatures and all these characters are connected in the same universe, cut forward to 2018, and by the time we were getting the ball rolling on the series, they had already done so many of these series and, yeah. and had tested out and figured out that it worked, that all these characters were connected in the same universe. So creatively, we had to... You know, and it and it happened fairly seamlessly. You know, we wanted there to be like an idea of like a grimoire, you know, a book of spells or a book of monsters um, in our series, and like, well, we've got that in in a you know another series. That's the Crypt So so that worked mm-hmm. in pretty naturally. You know, there's like a stinger with the the Sunny Family Cult, but um, with all that came kind of like a a responsibility. It's like, okay, this is no longer just like us doing our little one-off thing. This has a very real. Place and where it fits into this bigger crypt universe and this bigger fable that uh, they're trying to tell so it was just more the, the pressure of making sure like okay cool we're still like honoring the birch and we're still honoring the sunny family cult and we're still honoring I think they flip past like a photo of Stoneheart at some point you know if they, these characters are popping up we're still doing like justice to that we're making this piece that's gonna like fit in visually and aesthetically and tonally into this bigger world mm-hmm. while still putting our own creative stamp on it and still bringing you know our kind of East Coast grit to it.
1: Very cool. Yeah. And so, what was um, once? Uh, I mean, I, I was there for 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 this part, but um, just for for anybody listening, what was uh, production, and then. Uh, into post like for the the series
0: yeah so we lucked out on the location we pretty much found everything we needed at this one spot in alpine new jersey mm-hmm. one of our episodes focuses on a bunch of girl scouts we ended up shooting at a boy scout camp and they had all these cabins set up and they had just like acres and acres of beautiful rolling uh, autumn trees that we could like you're pointing the camera that way and there's trees you're pointing the camera that way and mm. there's trees. Um, and we
1: shot at, like, the perfect time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We got those gorgeous, like, fall Halloween colors. We shot on Halloween proper, which was which was really cool. And I mm-hmm. think, like, everybody on set felt some of that, like, horror Halloween magic. It was, like, an exciting thing to be a part of. And that was the day that we were, like, you and I were doing, you know, stabbing monsters in the face. And <laughs> you know, we had the queen, and we had the big truck. That uh, was a big day. Yeah, that was, that was cool. Um, and then, you know, from there you know we we wrapped and then for at least the first couple passes on the cuts it was just like me on my laptop um, and mm-hmm. eventually their their post team took over and and got the got everything over the finish line but it was a you know it was a little bit of a come down because it was up until that point it was the biggest production or thus far it's the biggest production I've been a part of and I mm-hmm. you know we had tons of hands and we had this huge crew and it felt like a big thing and then it was just like all right now everybody like is done and you're just like back to cutting it on a laptop, like it is a smaller thing. Um, and I definitely missed the just like the size and the collaborative nature of the of the big um, production. But fortunately, their their editorial
1: team, you know, took over and, and helped get it over the finish line. That's good. So, what? Um, how long did you have for your initial like kind of editor slash director cut? And um, what? Um, what, how, what? How do you typically work as? editing your own stuff like we talked about how you've kind of fit into a larger like um post house but like yourself how do you like to work
0: um I like to some people just go in and like do you know the raw dailies and they do it uncolored and they do it um untempt I like to put in temp score temp sound effects sort of like do the temp grade as I go just to like get it feeling and sounding as close to like a finished product, even when it is just like the rough cut, which I think we had like three, three or four weeks to, to turn around. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then when they announced that it was going to be released in January, uh, like that was going to kick off the, the 2019 crypt universe slate, obviously things got, got pretty expedited. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for the most part with it, and it was, it was weird cause like they're all, they all fit together, but there are sort of, it was sort of just like four little horror shorts individually. So I had like a different premiere project for each. I had a different, um, you know, sequence for every one of my cuts, uh, and I would kind of like bounce back and forth between them. So uh, sifting through those dailies and, and getting them to at least like a, a rough editor's director's cut.
1: So, um, after it's been released, what's been the fan response? Uh, how have you, uh, kind of come to terms with what Mordeo has become?
0: <laughs> uh, it's, it's been amazing, man. I mean, you know, it's, it's cool to see it up there, you know, go from just being like this little one-off short that I'm super proud of and super proud to have as a piece on Crypt TV, but now it's like, standing up there with sunny family cult and, and mm-hmm. Stoneheart and all these other series that i love as like a more long form thing and um you know the amount of fan art and just like messages from from people who have messaged me directly i'm sure crypt tv gets like the bulk of this but uh, who have reached out to say how much they love it mm-hmm. uh, has been really cool um and you know i'm like you know I I always say I'm like 90% a filmmaker for the merch. Like I'm a collector just (laughs) like you. So I just want like toys, Mm -hmm. t-shirts and to hat to be like wearing a monster that I had a hand in, in bringing to life. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, so it's, it's been super exciting. And, um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think people like, I think what helps set the Mordio apart in the crypt universe, other than the cool antlers and the cool design, cool setting. It's like, one of the few that you can actively transform into and I it feels it seems like a bulk of their audience as I did when I was a kid and still do to a certain degree like relate to these monsters even more so than the human characters Mm -hmm. so the idea of being able to transform into one and, and be one of them I think helps people feel a little less alone and I think that you know the idea of becoming one of these and again we talked about this early on it's not necessarily about making it scary but it's like Behold! These things are like beautiful mm. and cool. That seems to really resonate with with people. So, yeah. been and really one cool. of the
1: characters in the <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, it's been a cool experience. What do you think is next for for you and for your career? Obviously. Uh,
0: dream-wise the next step is as a lot of your guests and yourself have have said you know the next step and the the eventual end goal is is to do a feature Mm -hmm. um and you know with with this series what's been cool is like it's given me it's all cut together and they released a supercut like two weeks ago which which did great on on youtube you know it's given me like 18 solid minutes of content to like pitch around and show like i can do 18 minutes of monster stuff and character stuff and people running through the woods and Mm -hmm. trucks and 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 transformations and all of that and um you know it helped me land a manager and it's helped you know give me like a piece that i'm really confident in sending out to show like hey here's 20 minutes of something i can do now an hour and a half so Mm -hmm. the goal next um and you know it's an uphill battle we're all trying to get towards there but the goal next and the thing i'm actively moving towards soon the thing i'm actively submitting on and and my producers and my reps are actively submitting me on is is that first indie horror thriller feature
1: cool can you tell us a little bit about it you want to abstain from that for now
0: um i will say that it is a pretty contained post-apocalyptic movie Cool. It is definitely in the thriller horror sphere, albeit not supernatural. Mm-hmm. And uh it is set around in and around a certain time of year, similar to when we shot this series, that mm-hmm. uh holds a lot of significance to me, and I think it'll be a cool a cool little portfolio piece if and when it uh ends up getting made. When it ends up getting made. When.
1: Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Cool, man. Well, um what um what if uh, through all of the uh, the things that you've been doing thus far in your career um what advice I know we've kind of touched on it a little bit before, but is there any piece of advice you can offer to um people either um getting ready to go into film school or mm-hmm. coming coming right out of that um what do you what any kind of advice you have The piece of advice I'd give that has worked for me
0: has been to use your resources really wisely when you're going out to make a short, um, I think a lot of people will have a set chunk of change, a set number of days that they can shoot and try to cram like a 20 minute piece or a 25 minute piece or even like a 10, 11 minute piece into that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: sometimes, like I said, you know, I have friends who have done that to much higher degrees of success than, than I've achieved. And it, And it works for mm-hmm. them. For me, what I've found, especially when you're doing something that deals with stunts or gore or, you know, kind of expensive production design is to try and make it as manageable from a runtime perspective and from a script perspective as possible. And what I mean by that is like with the Kraken piece I did with the original short that I did, you know, the, the Mordillo short that I did, you know, making those, minutes or under I felt so in control of all the elements and I can make you know I could sh- send them to people and be like this is what like a minute of my feature would look like this is what like two minutes of my feature would look like and I'm not apologizing yeah but like we couldn't afford these lenses or yeah that day we were rushed making them short may- gave me the tools to just like focus on making them perfect and making them these little excerpt show pieces mm-hmm. that I'm really proud to take out and around and I think people mm-hmm. often get very ambitious when it comes to the runtime and the scope of their their things, and as a result, you end up with you know half finished or unfinished or areas in their shorts or or pieces that look and feel unpolished, which happens, and it's happened to me, and I learned that by you know making longer form things where that's that is what the end result ends up being, and I know you're always going to be rushed on set, but if you're, if the goal is to make a little showcase piece to show like, here's what I can do, mm-hmm. you want it to look and feel like two minutes or one minute out of a feature that you can send to anybody and not be like, yeah, but we didn't get this. Or we didn't get that. You're just like, here it is. Here's what I can do. And it looks badass, and I'm proud of it. So manage the runtime if you can. Um, if you're worried about draining resources, focus on making it as short as possible and as tight as possible.
1: I love that. That's great advice um cool man well uh if people um want to go to follow you or like follow the films or like watch anything that you've mm-hmm. done where, where can they go uh you can check out all the shorts and the the web series i've done at
0: my website it is very creatively just ben Sotak with two t's dot com uh you can follow screenshots from my stuff and or action figure photos that i take or photos of my beautiful girlfriend courtney at spooky Sotak on instagram i was very lucky to be one to snag the at spooky sotak handle and um yeah just keep an eye out on there for any other updates and uh as far as stuff on the horizon uh come 2020 look for the last thing he wanted on netflix directed by d reese starring ann hathaway which i apprentice edited on and it's a great flick
1: cool man thanks so much for joining me it was great to have you on brother thank you for having
0: me zach Hey, guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook and, most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.